0: What direction do you want our culture to go? Tune in as we plan the route that takes us back to the culture of life. And now your host,
1: Molly Smith. Welcome back. I am Molly Smith, your host. I want to remind you all that our program is available for download. You can do so by going to our website from themedian.org. Listeners, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you with us. We are in for a great interview right now. A brand new author who's not, not a brand new author, but a brand new guest is joining us. Blake Michael Thulin is the author of a book that is sort of just amazing. It's a, it's an excellent, excellent book. And I'm, going to advise all of you to get it and to buy it, particularly all of you out there that that are getting frustrated with trying to move through the crazy environment we're living in right now when it comes to the abortion debate. Blake's book is called Abortion Division, Why Americans Disagree on Such Fundamental Issue of Rights. It is published by Silent Meta Publishing Company, and we'll give you all that information as we go forward, as well as it will be up on our website. But without further ado, thank you so much, Blake, for joining us. Uh, Thank you, Molly, for having me. It's great. Blake has a BS in business administration from CSU Bakersfield and a JD from Santa Barbara College of Law. And in doing this, it showed him the importance of credible citations and impartial evidence with these tools. He turned his research paper into a detailed guide about abortion from a legal, medical, and moral position. And that is what we're going to be talking about today, about the book and how you did that. Blake, I was I was fascinated by the fact that you have been very upfront about it right at the beginning, that you don't try to convince either side as to what they should be thinking. What you're doing is showing both sides what they think. Have I got that correct?
0: Yeah, that was was a really important emphasis for me when writing this book. Uh, I think a lot of people, it's very easy for us to tell others what we think and why they should believe what we believe. And when I was approaching this, I decided to take the perspective that, you know, education was was the most important. A lot of times when I see pro-life and pro-choice activists debating each other, it's very common for them to speak past each other because they don't understand the differences in their values that generate these kinds of disagreements, um, And that was a real big emphasis that I had in the book, was that even though I I do have opinions about it, um, my opinions on abortion are not really as relevant as the actual facts of the subject. And so I tried to choose sources that were really highly credible uh, on both sides, um, especially when it came to the medical um, issue as well. Uh, I think that a lot of people... Don't quite understand exactly what an abortion is in the medical terms and what the physical act of abortion is. You know, I I rely pretty heavily on two different um, books. uh, The Clinician's Guide to Medical and Surgical Abortions by uh, Maureen Paul and uh, the Management of the Unintended and Abnormal Pregnancy uh, Comprehensive Abortion Care uh, from 2009, also by uh, Maureen Paul as well. Uh, when I go through kind of the ethical analysis of what these actual medical procedures are, um, and the reason why I had chosen both of those books was that they were, uh, endorsed by the National Abortion Federation. They have the National Abortion Federation logo on the cover of the book, uh, which I thought, you know, would make it very useful in explaining to both sides, you know, this is what abortion procedures are. Um, when it comes to the law, uh, The law uh, is really interesting in the sense that a lot of people talk about either, you know, Roe versus Wade was the worst case ever or it was the greatest case ever, depending on which side you're on. Um, But I really dove into the, the nitty gritty aspects of how. There are certain issues that come up when we think about abortion. So one of them is the definition of life. Uh, one of the issues that pops up as well is who, who makes these determinations as far as when life begins and life ends. And, uh, since law is my specialty, you know, I spent a great deal going into, uh, you know, going into a deep dive with Roe versus Wade and how this court case, essentially the judiciary was kind of overstepping their boundaries originally when Roe versus Wade was decided, because uh, traditionally speaking, matters of life and death have always been decided by the states. And the court did something really unusual where they said uh, that, you know, it's not our position to determine when life begins and when life ends, but we're also removing it from the states who actually technically should be able to decide that we're removing that power from them and just overriding them entirely. And so that was a real kind of interesting thing that the court did with uh, Roe versus Wade, and I go quite a bit into depth about the, the justification that they had for doing that, um, and whether or not they actually were justified in doing it. So,
1: so, so, so it, it's uh, you know, and and I and I want to say that I think this is a that's an, an excellent place to start this because you are so right, Blake. So often we are not going back to the root cause you know why did we get this division what happened there um, and i think going back to that point and showing people you know here's where we started now let's start talking about it from what this is what i'm understanding you're trying to do is it's okay here's where it started here's the law here's you know here, here's all the details now let's 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 go from that point and go forward i think that's an excellent excellent way to approach this. You also deal with exploring the emotion that's involved in this. You know, there's an emotional, um, almost visceral response to the people talking about abortion. And you almost sometimes you feel both from both sides, you can feel and I'm very, I'm absolutely seeped in the abortion debate all the time. But you can almost feel that the person who's reacting really strongly from a pro-life perspective has got something that is there that's, that's forcing them, almost forcing them to do this, you know, to respond in that way. And exactly the same on the opposite side. What did you find as you were going through that?
0: Well, so a large part of writing this book was, you know, doing a lot of research and trying to find what that cause of that that division that you're describing was. And I found that Jonathan Haidt uh, had provided a really solid explanation uh, in his book, um, The Righteous Mind, uh, Why Good People Disagree on uh, Politics and Religion. And Jonathan Haidt basically argues that there is a, and he says it's based in evolution and uh, You know, you could argue that it comes from God or you could argue it comes from religion or both. Uh, But there is a uh, moral intuition that is strongly ingrained into people for a concept of sanctity. And so this this concept of sanctity uh, that is ingrained on like a. I guess almost like a biological level. It's, it's a kind of a fundamental aspect of people's psyche, uh, served the purpose of, you know, helping our ancestors avoid bacteria or helping, uh, our ancestors preserve things that were good. And I took that concept that he had initially described and I really applied it to this abortion debate here. Um, and I use it to kind of describe that people kind of fall on this scale where uh, they have this high level of sanctity intuition in which they believe that life begins at conception and is to be uh, protected um, at all costs um, versus uh, people that are completely missing this concept of sanctity uh, altogether. And they really use kind of the default position that we, we've noticed with people when they make uh, moral calculations is this concept of uh, ethical hedonism. And so I, I developed this analytical tool with uh, sanctity intuition on the one side and ethical hedonism on the other, where we kind of have a spectrum here where on the sanctity side, uh, we have the highest protections for uh, unborn life. And on the ethical hedonism side, we have the uh, highest aversion to the pain of conscious people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's... Uh, You'll see in a lot of uh, secular moral reasoning, uh, you know, a real emphasis on, you know, maximizing the pleasure of conscious beings and reducing the pain of conscious beings. Um, But that that reasoning can run into some issues when you look at, uh, for example, people that are incapable of feeling pain. You know, do they still have rights? Or when we look at uh, concepts of uh, where human rights actually originate from. You know, our human rights, do they just come from the fact that we want to avoid pain? And so, therefore, we shouldn't do things to people that cause them pain. Uh, and, and other uh, problems with this as well is that when you look at how people perceive pain, it's not always um, uh, an objective measurement. You know, certain things uh, to some people don't really cause them much pain, well as, whereas the same thing to someone else can cause them a great deal of pain. And so, the The traditional moral framework that uh, we've had uh, with the Judeo-Christian philosophy is is that life begins at conception and that the value of life is basically originated in the belief that we are created in God's image. And that, that status of being created in God's image kind of protects this life throughout the development the, the problem of the pro-life movement I think really runs into is that for many other people who do not share that belief that there is a lot of pain that it could potentially be in uh, inflicted or caused uh, during the process of protecting that life and I think that that's the source mm-hmm. of a lot of mm-hmm. the arguments that come down is you know if we're protecting a being that you know, we're not entirely sure has the ability to perceive pain, but it causes pain to uh, other people uh, in order to preserve uh, this life or this concept of life, because um, a lot of people would argue that the the concept of life is a social construct. Um, then that's, that's where a lot of the issues really come into. And I think that the American people, broadly speaking, are are fairly moderate for the most part on this issue. You know, when you look at the people who are the most philosophically consistent on either the pro-life or the pro-choice side, uh, a lot of Americans don't like the... Uh, prescriptions for some of the more extreme or fringe cases that do come about. And with a nation of 330, 340 million people, these fringe cases do come about and they do need to be addressed in a way that is both uh, compassionate and uh, moral. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. That's an interesting, very, very interesting. You know, considering, and I, I, I happen to be one of those people that you know I, I believe in exactly what you've just described, and I believe in those cases which are very that would would be would be considered extreme from from a pro uh, pro choice, pro abortion perspective. But then I also understand that part of that, and, and this is something that I think, which is which is really interesting with your book, because as I'm reading through the, the, the write-up about your book and all this, it actually came to mind. You know, that's one of the reasons that I always look at this. For example, um, you know, a rape situation. Um, if we, if we do not protect that life, there's a whole nother piece that goes with that. The rapist, the person who inflicted the pain on that woman pretty well, for the most part, gets away scot free and can go out and do it again. So there's, you know, you're absolutely right. When you're bringing those, you know, that, that pain to, to society, pain to human life, it can come from both sides. And it's a very, I'm, 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 I'm absolutely fascinated that you could do this and you've done it very well in, in making, you made me think as I'm reading through this, it's like, wow, wow, this is amazing. Absolutely amazing. You also talk about the, um, and, and folks, we're going to have to, I, I'm going to, uh, uh, again and again give you, give you where you can get this book. It's called Abortion Division, Why Americans Disagree on Such a Fundamental Issue of Rights. And it's published by Silent Meadow Publishing Company. And, um, I don't know. Can we get it on Amazon? I know I don't really like Amazon, but
0: well, so yeah, I knew some people might not, uh, so it's available both on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and I think a, a few other distributors as well. so perfect. if you guys kind of like the, the old school Barnes and Noble, uh, we have it available there as well.
1: perfect, perfect, and of course i am t- um, uh, I'm talking to to Blake Thulin, Thulin, and he is the author of this amazing book, really, really thought, thought uh, thoughtful book. Here, um, one of the things you also talk about, Blake, is um, women dealing with unborn. You, you You go into the long history of abortion law, and you talk about women dealing with unplanned per, uh, pregnancies. How, talk to us about that. <sighs>
0: Yeah, so uh when it comes to unplanned pregnancies, I think that in our kind of modern lens it's very easy for us to see these as, you know, a women's rights issue. And when you look historically, that really was not the case. Uh in the Roman Empire and Greco-Roman times, uh the father had, you know, wide-sweeping powers over the family and in fact uh, the practice before, you know, there was what we consider abortion, they had something called exposure. And this is something that both the Greeks and the Romans did where, uh, the woman would give birth to the baby, uh, and the baby would normally be otherwise healthy, would be abandoned, uh, in the wilderness, um, and basically left to die. And, uh, this was kind of the way that, uh, uh, unplanned pregnancies were dealt with in those times. And, and the woman really didn't have much of a say in it. Um, this was, you know, the father. And a lot of these decisions were made for purely economic reasons. Um, you know, it it wasn't, you know, a health reason or anything like that, like the way we think of it in modern times. And so when we really start to see this kind of protection of uh, life really comes in with the Judeo-Christian perspective that, um, you know, uh, early Christians, for example, uh, you know, thought that since, you know, Babies could be born and sometimes they were born prematurely that uh, they must be alive before, you know, the the nine months and everything mm-hmm. uh, comes about in, you know, before the full term was uh, completed. And so <clears throat> this idea developed that, you know, if the baby can be born at eight months and still survive, then there's a possibility that it's alive before then. And as well, it really ties into the idea of quickening, uh, which can happen around, I think it's uh, 12 weeks here, uh, where, you know, something is moving independent of uh, the woman herself, you know, and that the quickening really indicates uh, both brain activity when we think of modern times, but it also indicates uh, kind of in ancient times, that there's an independent life that is present Mm -hmm. uh, within the woman. And... um, It's really interesting with uh, the Roe versus Wade case that uh, quickening also serves as kind of an evidentiary, uh, it serves an evidentiary purpose in the sense that we know that there is a life there. And so a lot of abortion laws that we see in uh, the the English common law and early America uh, used quickening as kind of that uh, boundary where, you know, if quickening has occurred and, you know, the woman can feel the baby uh, moving within her. Then abortions from that point forward were generally prohibited. Um, and it's funny in the uh, the original Roe versus Wade case, they seemed to come up with a different alternative explanation for why quickening was used as a as a cutoff point. And it was kind of bizarre reasoning that didn't really make sense to me. But I I think you know I I believe pretty strongly that it's an evidentiary uh, issue. That uh, you know there's life here at 12 weeks.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You also talk about um the 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 shortcomings of both of Roe v. Wade and also the recent overturn with the Dobbs decision. Unpack that a, a, a little bit for us.
0: So, uh one of the main issues is uh from a pro-life perspective, um we have the 14th amendment which um States that people cannot be deprived of life, liberty, or, um, or without due process. And, uh, one of the things that the recent abortion decision, uh, the one of the things the, uh, recent abortion decision, uh, did not do was really state when life originates. And so that decision was kicked back to the states where it traditionally, uh, came from. But at the same time, uh, there's a, a large sentiment in the pro life, uh, movement that, um, Due process rights should be applied to unborn uh, uh, babies unborn children, and that uh deprivation of uh, life uh, before um, without due process for unborn children is a violation of the Fourteenth Amendment uh The recent decision in uh the dobbs versus jackson women's Health organization really didn't go quite as far as to um, extend those protections and rather just removed the court from the abortion discussion entirely and Mm. kick the entire issue right back down to the States. Mm. And so now what we're seeing is that there's a new, uh, so, somewhat democratic process happening on the individual state levels, and I understand that you guys have um, yep very, very something going on in, in Ohio <laughs> as well yeah actually uh one thing i was I was actually going through some of the uh, text of the Ohio uh amendment proposal uh before I jumped on here, and one of the things that I wanted to point out is, is that this amendment uh talks about how fetal viability is a determination of the healthcare provider and is determined on a case-by-case basis. Exactly, yep. And one of the things that's uh, really interesting is that about 24 weeks um, after conception, there's about a 50% uh, survival rate for the fetus if it's uh, born at that time. And one of the constraining factors for the survival of the fetus is the development of the lungs. And so... um, Basically, the the ability to take in oxygen and expel uh, carbon dioxide from the blood uh, using the lungs. That 24 week period is kind of a 50 50 thing. Uh, viability is not a uh, it, it's not like an on and off switch. You know, it's really a more of a probability calculation. And so when you uh, take viability and calculate it in terms of percentages, at 24 weeks, it's really a coin flip chance whether or not that. Uh, the baby, the unborn child will be, will survive if they are born at 24 weeks. And the problem with termination is, is that if you terminate at 24 weeks, you don't really know if you made the right or wrong decision. Because if the baby isn't born, you have no way of knowing whether or not it will survive or not. Exactly. And therefore you have no way of Determining whether or not the decision you made was right or wrong. And it really takes advantage of a kind of technical, uh, moral gray area. Uh, and just says, well, you know, we we will never know if what we did was right or wrong. And that's mm-hmm. that's kind of something that's unique with um, a lot of these viability Based assessments of human life
1: exactly we've got about three minutes left. Can you tell us how do we stay open minded <laughs> how do we how do we actually get to each other's point of view and get a, a a better perspective on where we're coming from?
0: Yeah, I think probably having uh you know a casual and compassionate uh, relationship with uh, people that disagree with us and you know having a lot of patience as well is you know really the key and understanding that not everybody shares the same values that we do uh, one of the things I talk about in the book for for pro-life uh, advocates is that uh, philosophy is your sword and compassion and sympathy are your shield huh uh, beautiful yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you know the, the philosophy and everything is is pretty solid and and because it comes from a monolithic uh, argument and reasoning on the pro-life side but the the real part where we struggle, I think, uh, when it comes to pro-life people talking to pro-choice people is that compassion and sympathy because the pro-choice people are trying to avoid pain at all costs. And there may be instances in which, uh, you know, abortion inflicts more pain than otherwise would happen. You know, uh, the thing with the pro-choice crowd is, is that, uh, an unplanned pregnancy is a problem and abortion is essentially a proposal that says, we'll just make it go away without consequences. And arguing against that from a uh, compassionate perspective, arguing that doing something that is more difficult is actually the right thing and something to be lauded can be very difficult, mm-hmm. especially in these, you know, painful cases that are, you know, really heartbreaking in nature, you know, they can be very heartbreaking. Um, and compassion and sympathy are really a way of kind of getting getting there
1: and, and it's almost become I, and I I wonder whether you would agree with me it's almost become a religion it is it is a it is so deep seated in in someone who who agree who thinks that abortion does fix those problems even though it may be a little bit painful this is a religion almost it's become you know almost like a, a demigod sort of thing that you have to be able to have this available to you otherwise you yourself will be lesser if you ever have to deal with that, and you don't have that ability to do so. This is, you know, w- when I'm dealing with, with the other side, and I I believe by the grace of God, it's the only thing that will eventually get this thing sorted out, but it's it's going to be a long one. So, you know, you're absolutely right. We're in the thick of it all here at Ohio, but we will not blink, and we will keep going, and, and, and we will use your book to help us to get through this. So it's wonderful to have, again, I am talking to Blake Thulin. His book is called The Abortion Division, Why Americans Disagree on Such a Fundamental Issue of Rights. It can be found at a silent Meta Publishing Company at Barnes and & Nobles and also on Amazon. So thank you so much, Blake, for being with us. We really appreciate it. God bless you lots. <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you all for joining me this evening. As I say goodnight and God bless each and every one of you, I'd like to close with the words of the Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel. There may be times when we are powerless to prevent injustice, but there must never be a time when we fail to protest. From the Median is listener-supported. Visit our website, fromthemedian.org, for further information or to make a donation to continue to make this radio program possible. Email us, radio news at fromthemedian.org or call 440-668-4049. Through our fromthemedian.org website, you can download this or previous programs for your listening pleasure or sign up to receive our weekly preview of upcoming guest interviews. Tune in every weeknight at the same time to listen to another
0: great interview on From the Median as we plan the route that takes us back to the culture of life.